to begin a series on emotional wealth and emotional poverty. What I hear from educators more than anything else right now is the number of the children who are coming to them with emotional issues, anxiety, the number of parents who are out of control, kindergartners who are actually in alternative centers for their behavior. So how do we begin to address this issue? Well, in America, we've always thought of poverty as financial, but actually what we're seeing is more and more emotional poverty, regardless of the financial status of the family. So for the purposes of this series, we're going to define emotional poverty and emotional wealth is the extent to which your resources are stable or unstable. One of the things we know is this, the more unstable your resources, and those of you who are familiar with framework know about the resources, financial, emotional, mental, physical, support systems, relationships and role models, um, language, all those resources that help you survive your environment. When they become unstable, then it threatens two things, your safety and your belonging. And the two things that create emotional wealth are safety and belonging. So what we find out is as the resources get fewer and fewer and thinner and thinner, your safety and belonging is threatened because it becomes unpredictable. I know a young man, he grew up in a very, very, very wealthy family. He had 24-hour security assigned to him because the family had so much wealth. But his mother was an alcoholic and his father was a functioning alcoholic. And he said he cannot remember one meal in which there wasn't an argument or a verbal fight. And now he has Crohn's disease. The tension of always being at a meal where people angry and fighting. The bottom line is this, regardless of your financial status, as your safety and your belonging gets threatened and becomes more and more unstable, what it creates then is emotional poverty. More and more of our children, because the relationships are unstable, housing is unstable, mobility is higher, what we find is that whole thing of security and belonging and safety is missing. So in this series, we're going to talk about strategies you can use with students who don't have emotional wealth. One of the questions I get a lot from people is, what do you do when you know a child is facing instability in their relationships, particularly they don't feel like they're safety and they belong? Let me give you a story. When I was principal, I had this boy show up in my office. He was a sixth grader and I had never seen him before and it was Thanksgiving. It was the week before Thanksgiving. So I knew he wasn't particularly a, a, a troublemaker. When he came into my office, he had gotten in a fight and he was very agitated. And so uh, in order to calm him down, I said, well, tell me about Thanksgiving. What are you gonna do? And he said to me, I have to go to California. I said, hmm. I said, and you don't want to go? He said, no. I said, so why are you going? He said, well, my dad and his new wife is out there and I have to go. I said, have you met his new wife? No. He said, so is that why you got in the fight? He said, yes. I said, well, you can't fight at school. And I said, 
what are you going to do when you're in California? He said, I don't know. I said, I'll tell you what. Let's make a plan for what you're going to do when you're in California. He said, here's what you don't know. You don't know what she'll be like. You don't know who's going to be there. You don't know what you'll do. You don't know if there's other kids your age. You don't know. So I said, let's make a plan so that no matter what happens, you'll be okay. I said, so what do you like to do? He said, well, I like to read. I like to play video games. I said, okay. First of all, let's take games with you. Can you do that? He said, yes. I said, can you take some books with you? He said, yes. I said, so what else can you do while you're there? He said, I don't know. I said, are there any shows on TV that you like to watch? I said, will you have plenty of video games that you can take with you? He said, yes. I said, okay. Now, the second thing I have to do is teach you how to calm yourself. I said, this is upsetting you as it would anybody. I said, but here's how you're going to calm yourself. So the first thing you do in this is you make them look up. Because when eyes are up, you are in a visual position. I said, stand up, look up. And I explained him why. Now I said, I want you to tell me, think about a place that you feel safe and that makes you feel relaxed. So what he did is I could watch his shoulders and when his shoulders started to relax, I knew he was starting to get there. So I said to him, tell me what this place looks like. And so he, he told me, I can tell you for me, it's on a beach, relaxed, the sun's warm, the wind's blowing, I'm laying on a lounge chair, I'm, I'm looking at the water, watching the waves, I'll relax, okay? So when I saw that he was relaxed and he described the place to me in detail, then I said, okay, I want you to take a deep breath and close your eyes. And you ask them to take their one hand and squeeze it on their other hand. And I said, I want you to squeeze right here. Take a deep breath. Feel how that feels and squeeze right there. He said, okay. So I had him open his eyes. I had him do it again with a squeeze. Okay. Had him sit down, do it again with a squeeze, take a deep breath. And then I said to him, here's what you're going to do. Whenever you start thinking about this and you start worrying about this, I want you to take a deep breath, squeeze your wrist, and think about that place. Close your eyes, take some more deep breaths, and then relax. And remember, you have a plan. I said, and one more thing. You've got four days till you leave for Thanksgiving. If you need to come back and see me, and we work on this again, we will. But you can't fight at school anymore. But that's what happens to a child when they don't feel they have safety and belonging. I wanted to tell you about a little second grade boy who had a teacher who helped him develop emotional wealth. He was a little second grade boy and every day he brought his imaginary motorcycle to class. So all day long it would be So the teacher said to him, honey, motorcycles are not allowed in the classroom. You need to park it outside the door. Well, periodically he would forget and he would go right during class. She would say to him, honey, you have to park your motorcycle outside the door. You can't have it in class.
Didn't reprimand him, didn't scold him, just reminded him. Well, about a couple weeks later, the little boy said to her, when she said to him, honey, you have to park it outside the door, he said, I can't, not today. And she said, so why can't you today? And he said, well, I might need to jump on it and get out of here. He said, me and my mom, we do that when my dad gets mad. And the teacher said, look, I understand you need that motorcycle close to you, so why don't you bring it up here by the desk, my desk, and you come sit by it, okay? And then I said, and then she said, and, you know, if you need to jump on, I'll jump on with you. The little boy said, okay, that's good. About a three weeks later, the little boy came back to her and said, you know what? I think I'm okay without my motorcycle. I don't think I'll have to bring it in here anymore. In other words, he felt safe and he felt like he belonged. And part of building emotional wealth is understanding that there's safety and there's belonging. So the teacher did not reprimand him. She did not scold him. She did not send him to the office. She just found a way so that he could have safety and belonging. What is emotional wealth? Well, basically, in my definition, it's when your resources are stable enough that you can have safety and belonging. And there's actually time for nurturing. The closer you are to survival, the less time there is for anything but survival. And what happens in this nurturing process, is it starts very young, is that in that process, there's time devoted to the child, time devoted to their development and their well-being, and there are five things present. David Rico, R-I-C-H-O, has a book called How to Be an Adult in a Loving Relationship, and he identifies five A's, okay? Those five A's are present in a nurturing, loving relationship where emotional wealth is built. But to do that, you have to have time, okay? And here are the five A's. One, acceptance, okay? Acceptance means I accept who you are with your strengths and your weaknesses, and I honor those strengths. I acknowledge the weaknesses. I don't criticize them and I don't attempt to guide your life totally in the direction of the weaknesses. I like your strengths. The second one that he says is present in loving relationships is attention. You give the person attention. You talk to them. You're with them. And the bottom line on attention is that, again, the closer you are to survival, the more time you have to devote to keeping you or the people you love simply alive, attention then gets diverted to the process of survival. And what happens is that you don't get that one-on-one -on -one relationships with other adults. The third thing that happens when the five A's are present is appreciation. I appreciate you. I appreciate that you did this for me. I appreciate that you were willing to help me without asking. The fourth one is allowing. You allow them to have freedom to explore. You allow them to develop talents and skills they think they would like to have. You allow them basically to be who they are. 
You don't try to make them into something they're not. And the fifth one is affection. You let them know you like them. You let them know that you love them. It's affection. There's touch. There's laughter. There's bonding. So as you think about those things in the classroom, how do you show your students those five A's? Appreciation. Allowing. Acceptance. Affection. And you have to be careful with that one in public schools. But you can let them know you like them. You think that was good. Shared laughter. And the last one is attention. And it's hard when you have 30 kids in a classroom to give individual attention to everyone every day. I don't think it's necessarily possible. But what can you do over the course of a week is to say something to them one-on-one -on -one that lets them know you are paying attention to them. You see them. The five A's. They're critical in the development of emotional wealth. One of the questions I get a lot is where does emotional wealth come from? And where the earliest experiences has to do with early bonding and attachment. Probably one of the best uh, pieces of research was John Bowlby, who looked at young children. He took six-year-old and put him in a room and had their caretaker bring him to the room. The room had a two-way mirror. And the caretaker left the child at the door of the room. In the simplest explanation of it, he said the following. He said, number one, if the child went in the room, cried a little bit, and then explored the room, there were toys in the room and everything else, and didn't cry anymore, but preoccupied himself or herself with the room, he said that the child was secure and attached. In other words, they had safety and belonging. They knew they could move around the room, check it out, and the caretaker would come back and get them. He theorized that emotional wellness, safety and belonging, attachment and bonding, if you will, was related to your ability to feel safe enough to explore and know that that relationship was still there when you came back. If the child went in the room, stood at the door and cried and cried and cried and cried and cried, and then went and sat down but didn't explore the room, he said the child was insecure and avoidant. And one of the things, bonding and attachment tends to follow you all your life and tends to show up in uh, romantic relationships. I was working with a beginning teacher and her classroom was totally out of control, totally out of control. Kids were on the desk throwing stuff. And when interviewed, she said, you know, I'm a good teacher, the kids are bad. So in other words, I'm okay, but I'm going to avoid this place because it's not a safe place. If the child came in the room and stood at the door and cried and cried and cried and kind of checked out the room but kept looking back for the, the caretaker and was never really quite okay in the room, Bobby said they were insecure and anxious. In other words, that's the child in your classroom who constantly says to you, is it okay? Did I do it right? I'm not sure. Did, is this right? Did I do it right? It's that insecure and anxious, okay? Then Marsha Linehan, if I remember correctly, did the last piece of research, and she found that there's a fourth group. They're out of control, and many schools right now report kindergartners out of control. It's survival of the fittest. They're not bonded. They're not attached. They're not, they're not okay, and the world's not okay. They're out of control. And she said that those children 
had young mothers who were insecure themselves. Well, what happens in this bonding and attachment is that the stability of the resources is critical in this. If you have time with your children, if you have, know that there's going to be food every day, that there's going to be um, relationships going to be there, that it's predictable, that it's stable, the chances of getting bonded and attached are much stronger. If you go on our website, I've written an article, What to Do About Kindergartners Out of Control. And it has to do with this bonding and attachment. That is one major source of emotional wealth. Another way that adults help children build emotional wealth is that they identify the feelings by name. Number two, they accept the range of feelings. And number three, they give you strategies to deal with it. For example, one of the pieces of research in Tessa's study was that one of the ways that teachers built excellent relationships with students is they accepted their feeling. A story that was told was of a bus trip that got canceled and the students were so upset and they were complaining about it, they were bitter about it. And rather than get chew them out for that, what the teacher instead said, you know what, I'm really sad too. I really wanted to go and I am so disappointed we can't go. And it's such a letdown for you. And all the students immediately said, oh, it's okay, it's okay, okay. It's the acceptance of feelings. One of the things a friend of mine does to help children name feelings is he has a whole board of all the emojis, all the different expressions of feelings. And particularly for males, since language does not necessarily always come as quickly in brain processing, and for children in poverty who have half the vocabulary of other children, who are in educated households, one of the things he does is he makes this whole board of emojis. And before the students debrief about what happened, he asks them to pick out three emojis. He's got them laminated that best express what they're feeling right now. And then he gives them language for those feelings. And then he gives them a strategy for dealing with it. It's wonderful when you have an an adult who acts as a coach for you with your emotional realities. What happens when you have an adult who does not have enough emotional wealth to coach? It's like money. If you're financially broke, you don't have any money to give anybody else. And if you're emotionally impoverished, you really are unable to coach a child or anyone else in your space. One of the things that I think is fascinating is that until you're eight or nine years old, you store your earliest memories in the amygdala of the brain. And the amygdala is a fascinating place, has a long-term memory for the feeling, but a short-term memory for the incident. And one reason it gets stored there is you actually got that experience before you had vocabulary to assign to it. And the research is that you kind of act on that information all your life, unless one of four things happen. You meet somebody different than you are, which is social bridging capital. The second thing is you get educated. The third thing is you get employed. The fourth thing is that you have some sort of spiritual slash religious experience that changes your thinking. Well, how many of you in this room have done something and you you thought to yourself, oh my goodness, what happened here? This is my mother again. This is my father. I've turned into them. Well, what happened is your amygdala kicked in. And you acted on the feeling even though you didn't know why. Well, if you didn't get any emotional coaching and nurturing as a child, okay, then all your life 
you're probably going to feel inadequate in some way until you can cognitively recognize that where that came from. And it's going to be difficult for you to coach anybody because you don't have a model to see coaching. So unless you get it from someone else or unless you get educated about it so that you can coach. I got an email from a gentleman who was watching the video series and he said, you know, you explained some things to me about this emotional wealth and emotional poverty. My mother, he said, my father died. My mother just verbally was so angry at me all my life. He said, I felt so inadequate. And I said, yeah, you would. Because your mother embedded that in your brain before you were eight or nine years old. What you do in a situation like that is that you change your mother's voice. You don't hear her voice anymore. You replace it with a different voice and different verbiage. You can become someone who gives yourself own affirmations. And I think that what we do when we're cognizant that that happened, we can address it and then we can emotionally coach because we understand the experience. Even though you didn't grow up with it, you can acquire it and you can give it to others. One of the things that causes emotional poverty is mental illness. And Freud defined mental health as when you could love and work. In the DSM-5, which is the Bible of mental health, it lists everything in there that can be wrong with you. And if, if you it's not in there, you can't have it. But... Among psychologists, there's this general frame of understanding that about 90% of the population is sane. In other words, they can live and work without too much disruption. All of us do things that are less than sane periodically. Okay, But how disruptive is it to our lives? Okay, And then they say that about, I put it on a little whiteboard for you, about 3 to 4% of the population is insane, literally. Their life is so disruptive and so unpredictable that maintaining stability or maintaining the ability to work or love is pretty difficult. But there's a group in there between 5 and 6% of the population that are referenced as borderline personality. And there's Axis 1 and Axis 2. Axis 1 is closer to sanity. Axis 2 is closer to insanity. What happens is that when you have this borderline, they become in many ways some of the most difficult people to deal with because their actions do not make any sense for someone who is quote-unquote sane. So what we find is that they can maintain a fairly good semblance of life, okay, but their behaviors are disruptive to people around them in every way. And so what you find is that when you are dealing with someone who is borderline, it's a whole different experience and it creates emotional poverty, not only for the person who has it, but the person to whom they are around because they have the ability to create emotional angst and poverty wherever they go. One of the things that puts each of us into emotional poverty periodically is when our energy slash responsibility lines get out of whack. 
And a friend of mine who's a therapist shared this with me and it made all the sense in the world to me because I realized I had been in that trap more than once. What he said basically is that you have a energy line and energy is this what you devote to different things. For example, it's not the same as time allocation. It's energy allocation. For example, how many of you have been at work, but you weren't really thinking about work? You were thinking about something else. You were devoting your energy to something else. Well, what he said is when we're young, until we're oh, about 35, we engage in activities and we take on responsibilities because we believe we will have unlimited energy all our life. But then when you hit about 35, your energy starts to peak. But that's just when your responsibility line starts to climb. And let me show you this little grid, okay, that he showed me. So he said, basically, what happens until you are in your mid-30s, your energy line, by that dotted line, continues to climb. He said, but what happens is your responsibility line continues to climb until you're in your mid-60s. So what happens is all of a sudden you've got this energy line. This energy line has leveled off. But your responsibility line continues to climb. And so there is a discrepancy here between your energy and your responsibility. And he said, what happens is this. You all of a sudden think, oh, I've agreed to have children in my early 20s to 30s. But the responsibility for them is continuing to climb. For a lot of educators, I'm midway through my career. I've been in this career. I'm 40 years old. The responsibilities have multiplied in this job. How am I going to keep up with that, with my children, with all the other commitments I've made, my mortgage, which is a long-term commitment? And in that discrepancy then, we get tired and weary. And our emotional resources get very thin because we are not sure what's going to happen. And we devote a lot of energy to worry and it's the energy responsibility trap I'm going to talk about what you do about that because it really limits your emotional resources I said that I would talk about what you do when you get caught in that energy slash responsibility trap okay and what catches us in this trap is when we start thinking what if questions rather than what is questions. What if this happens or what if that happens or what if? And many times I will check myself when I'm getting worried or anxious about something and say, Ruby, you're in your what if world again. Those are conjured thoughts that might not even happen. And I know that the brain in its goal to keep us safe has us think about and worry about possibilities, okay? But what ifs are simply possibilities, and they're really pretty much non-productive thinking. 
Katie Byron has a book called Loving What Is, The Four Questions That Change Your Life. And these are the four questions that she says to ask. Number one, is it true? Ask yourself, is this actually true? True, what I'm saying to myself. Do I have proof of that? The second question is, are you absolutely certain it's true? Can you absolutely know it to be true? Are there examples when it wasn't true? The third question is this. How do you react when you think that thought? Is it fear? Is it joy? Is it laughter? Is it anxiety? Is it anger? When you think that thought, what emotion comes in there with it? And then her fourth question is this. What would you be like without that thought? How would your life be easier, kinder? One of the things that happens when we get in what-if thinking, we almost always get in self-criticism. Okay? Well, you should have done this. Well, you should have done that. And I learned years ago that whenever you are processing should or ought, I should have done that, I ought to have done that, he should have done that, she should have done that, he ought to have done that, you're very close to what if. And then that produces anxiety. So, what if I don't get this job done? What if I can't pay the mortgage? What if I can't meet this demand at work? What if my children do this? What if? And so one of the things you do is you go back to what is the reality right now? I am doing my job. Okay? I am doing this. I have paid the mortgage. There's no reason I won't continue to do that. And it's a way to deal with that energy responsibility trap. If you've not read Katie Byron's book, I really recommend it to you. One of the things that determines how we have emotional poverty or emotional wealth is how we deal with a basic lifelong issue, okay? What happens to us all our lives is that we go through this repeated, repeated process of bonding, separation, individuation, new bonding. It starts when we're very young. And I have it on a, a little chart for you here. You can see it. It starts when we're very young. We bond to our caretaker. And then when we get two years old, we decide mm, we don't like that. And we go, no. Okay? That's separation. Then we get to the point which is called individuation. I like this part of my relationship with my caretaker. This part I don't like. I'm going to keep this part, not keep this part. And then we go on to new bonding. It is a process that repeats itself all its life. And wherever there's a circle, there's emotional work to do. Well, if you have too much grief, too fast, too often, then we don't transition those phases of life. And we get stuck. And it becomes harder and harder and harder to have emotional resources. It happened to my father before he died. He couldn't drive two years before he died. He died at 93. He loved to drive. He was bonded to driving. Then he had to separate from it. Who is he if he can't drive anymore, if he can't be his own person? That's separation. And then he had to come to a new understanding of himself without that individuation. And then 
New bonding. What will he do next? Well, thank goodness he fell in love with his iPad. And that took him out in the world when he couldn't drive anymore. What I have to show you is a prayer shawl. And I don't know if you know about prayer shawls, but this was made for me. They have tassels on them. They're bulky. Oh, nine, I was sick for three weeks. And I canceled seven speaking engagements. I've never done that before or since. And one of my consultants knitted me this prayer shawl. And they're bulky and they're big and they're meant to wear over things. And you, you play with the tassels. It was to help me through that difficult time of my life. And what happens in this bonding individuation piece, we separation from who we think we are to someone new and different, then what we do is we have friends and relationships and faith and belief that helps us transition that. And it was a gift she gave to me. It's a gift we give to ourselves and we give to others when we acknowledge that that is a part of life. It has to be negotiated. And if we can negotiate those pieces, those transitions, where we lose pieces of ourselves, where we give up, where we have to change who we think we are, if we can negotiate those and go to new bonding, a new interest, new friendships, then we can have emotional wealth. We talked about the process you have to go through all your life from bonding to separation to individuation to new bonding. Well, what happens when people have too many hits emotionally and they, they get stuck somewhere in that process and this person dies and then a divorce happens and then they move and they lose all their friends. So what happens when you don't transition those processes? It is actually has a psychological term. It's called compound grief. And what happens to people is that they get boxed in. In other words, they start believing there's nowhere to turn. And it looks like this. Okay, There's nowhere to turn. And then what happens is you lose who you think you are and who you know yourself to be. And so your anxiety climbs. Okay, And you pacify yourself. This is one of the places where addiction starts. And eventually, you get so isolated that there's no new bonding. You are so lost, you lose pieces of yourself. All our lives, we lose pieces of ourselves. Sometimes they're taken away from us. Sometimes they're traded. Sometimes they're bartered. Sometimes they're never developed. Sometimes we age out. Okay, Like, for example, I know a woman in her late 40s. She has kind of decided that really having a child now is too late for her. And so what you do is you age out and you lose who you think you are. And eventually, if you get stuck in that process and the emotional work that has to be done to transition through those stages doesn't happen, then you feel isolated. You feel alone. You don't believe there's anywhere to turn. You are absolutely trapped. And then what you do when you believe that is that you seek diversion. 
anything to take you away from that feeling of isolation and loss and desperation. Addictions, pacifications, and there's really only one way out, and that's to figure out something new that interests you, that you can bond to. I understand that because I've been there. Okay, And the bottom line is, even if it's only one hour a day, two hours a day, you have to say to yourself, one hour a week for this one hour. This is what I'm going to do. Because that slowly wedges the door open. You don't stay isolated. And you can be who you are. We've written a book about this that you can get off our website. It's called How Much Yourself Do You Own? And it's how you get back the pieces of yourself that you've lost in the process of life. Okay, It's in Spanish and it's in English. Okay, How much yourself do you own? And it's really how you get back those parts of yourself that you lost in the process of life. So, see you next time.